All right, it's DT Systems, dog tested and dog tough. You know, we like that dog in them, baby. We've been using the H2O1820. Over the last several months, we've been playing with this unit. Our friends at Standing Stone Kennels, Ethan and Kat, they've been using it for years, and we've been playing with it. We really like it. I think for the dog trainer, the hunter, and the guy or gal who's training their dog to get ready for duck season, we'll really enjoy the 1820. Super reliable, super consistent, great unit for you and your dogs. H2O1820. Dog tested. Dog. Gunner Kennels, baby. Hashtag man's best kennel. Well, it's also now hashtag man's best food crate. It's freaking raccoon proof. You can't get into this thing. Your dog can't bust into the lid and eat all the food. Trust me, I know Memphis has done it in the past. She looks like a blown up pumpkin. Boom. But not anymore. We've got the Gunner Kennel food crate. It's easy to pack easy to store, keeps food dry, which food's an investment, man. That Purina, baby, it ain't cheap anymore. So keep it dry, good, all that stuff. Easy to pack, easy to store. The Gunner Kennel Food Crate, slide into DMs if you'd like to learn more. Have you wondered if you wanted to force fetch your dog? Maybe you think your dog's too soft. Maybe you're too nervous to screw, quote unquote, screw your dog up. Let me help you. I built a start to finish course with different dogs, different breeds, and different personalities from start to finish to show you how that you and your dog can do it successfully and easy. Jump in, links in the description. We'd be happy to help you. Let's go. Let's set goals and get you and your dog where you want to be this duck season. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles, baby. We got a good episode coming up. My buddy, fellow New Yorker, Tom Davis. Tom Davis is an educator, a human and dog educator. He doesn't call himself a trainer. He is a come-up story like you've never heard, and he goes into it deep on this episode. I'm really excited. We also did Shot for Shot Q&A from our Instagram followers forum. It was really, really fun. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. But first, let's dabble in that Patreon, baby. Now, we appreciate every single one of our patrons. It's a ton of fun. We have bi-weekly happy hours where we jump on live like a Zoom for all you 2021, you know, COVID folks who had to go to the office and skip the office and do Zoom. We do Zoom happy hours, having a beer, a brewski, some may say, talking dogs and dog training. And then I'm on there answering your questions and giveaways and exclusive hunts where we went and hunted with Pit Boss. So uh, jump on patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters and join that community. Next up, mm, you can noob Baby, the food that fuels the truck of Lone Duck. That 3020 and that puppy blend, you've heard me talk about it in the past. That is what we feed our dogs. They're looking good, doing well, and performing at the ultimate. They're professional athletes. They work every day. They bust their butt, breaking ice, going and getting their ducks. Let's feed them the right stuff. Next up, Gunner Kennels. Now you're feeding them the right stuff. Let's put them in the right stuff. If you're going down the road and things were to hit the fan, you know, snowstorm, I drove through a snowstorm today, road was a mess, cars were off the road, and if you had your dog in your back seat, un 
tethered or not in a kennel. I mean, that'd be a real scary thing. So Gunner Kennels, man's best kennel, crash test rated, American made. Get them. And if you'd like, slide into the DMs and we'll hook it up. Next up, Kent. Shoot or shoot, baby. That. Mm. What did I do? The sniff. I had the sniff. Mm. It's like eating something. Mm, now, I'll be very frank with you all. I did not kill a lot of ducks this season. But when I did pull the trigger, a duck fell out of the sky. It, it wasn't for anybody's fault other than poor weather conditions. We scouted our butts off. It was a slow darn season. So if you got a slow season and you see a duck within range and you pull that trigger and you are on that duck, the last thing you want to do is see it cripple, fall into the weeds, and not be able to recover that duck. So you shoot them with a bismuth, knocks them stone down dead in the decoys. Your dog goes out and gets it. You high-five in your buddies and say, mm, bismuth. Baby. And they'll be like, what are you doing, man? You got the sniffles? We got the COVIDs? No, just shoot bismuth, baby. Give them the bismuth. Get them the business with the bismuth. Next up, smoke them if you got them. Tonight I put, thank you to Ben, Hunter's owner, brought us some back straps, venison, deer meat back straps. was on the Traeger tonight. We seared it in bacon grease on the cast iron skillet. Got it nice and a little bit crispy right there. Put it in the... Traeger, smoked it to 135, medium rare, a little bit of rare. Kevin, how was it? Just oh, Ben, a big thank you. Just yeah. Darn good. Yeah. Add a baby. Next up, Dr. E collars. This is the collar that our guest tonight, Tom, and I both use and have used since the beginning. And I loved his story about his dog, and, and we'll get into it in the show here. He almost had a oh no moment with his dog that totally changed how he approached life owning a dog with an e-collar and it became a dog tra. and he's trained hundreds if not i would go thousands he's he's the real deal thousands of dogs using dog tra. customer service bad to the bone quality bad to the bone you can get them at loanduckoutfitters.com dog tra. lastly waypoint outdoor collective you in tune with us we in tune with you, baby. All right, Tom. Thank you so much for joining the show. Let's get into it. Sure. Yeah. My name's Tom Davis. I'm a. I don't know. I guess I'm a dog trainer slash educator slash teacher slash artist slash content creator slash whatever. So uh, I live in upstate New York and operate uh, two different dog training facilities out of upstate New York near the Saratoga Springs Clifton Park area. So. Uh, on the contrary of popular belief, um, upstate New York is actually way upstate. It's not <laughs> It's not 10 minutes outside of Manhattan. So, yeah, so I'm about four hours from, from the big city north. And, uh, yeah, we have a couple different dog training camps. And we do all sorts of different stuff with dogs, to behavior modification, to puppy training, to e-collar work. So do a little bit of everything. That's cool. When did you start that business out by well so everybody if they don't know i'm from syracuse new york and so he's maybe an hour and a half to two hours away so we've met in vegas at shot show but never met in new york so it's kind of (laughs) crazy yeah it is yeah everyone everyone always thinks that when i say upstate new york they immediately say 
like Western New York, like not even Syracuse, like Buffalo, Rochester. Yeah. yeah. You know, anyway. But yeah. So uh, I started, let's see, I started working with dogs professionally. And the way that I, I guess, uh, justify that is taking money from people and, and getting paid for working with dogs, right? Because I think every dog professional or most dog professionals that are in industry now always like to say, I've been doing this my whole life. Right. And I think that's true to a lot of degrees. I think a lot of people who are end up working with dogs have always had a passion, love um, for dogs. And so anyway, I started professionally working with dogs about 13, actually like closer to 14 years ago now. So I, I started a dog walking company essentially. And um, that's kind of what got my, my foot in the door of working with dogs with different behavioral stuff and kind of got me into really doing behavior modification and figuring out I can go really granular. I don't, I don't know how, how deep you want me to go into it, but that's pretty much how I got my career. That's what I, I, I love the backstory, man. I want everybody who's listening to feel who you are. And and so do I, I want to know, you know, a dog that changed it for you. That's like, this is, this was a challenge. This, this made me, you know, made it special. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. And I, I like that too. Cause it, you know, that's, that's the beauty of podcasts is just being able to, you know, it's not like a five second thing of who are you, you know, it's really gives it an opportunity, but yeah. So about 13 years ago, essentially I, I, I bounced around from like a lot of people from, you know, getting out of high school, then going to local college, trying to figure out, you know, community college, what I wanted to do, you know, I was in 19, 18, 19, 20 year old ish and uh, just kind of bouncing around. I don't really know what to do. So I went to a semester of uh, community college, watched all my friends continue to go to college. I'm like, I don't know. I don't really, and just college just really wasn't for me. I didn't really like the idea of somebody dictating how successful I was going to be in the future. And so essentially what I did is I remember I was on my, I was on a drive with my brother, my older brother. And he said to me one day, he's like, you know, we're just trying to figure out what I wanted to do just to kind of shut shooting the shit, you know, like brothers do. And, he said, um, what, what would you like to do? What would you like to wake up every day and love? Like really spring out of bed and really like, to, well, man, it'd be really great if I can figure out how to do that with dogs. I mean, I really like dogs. I understand dogs. I'm so, I mean, and this is something that was like innate to me as I'm just so comfortable with them. Just like, you know, some people have to work on their craft to really figure out everything about it. And from day one, I mean, I just was so comfortable with dogs, always kind of messed around with them, trying to figure out what made them tick. And we have videos and pictures of me when I was like in diapers, literally like carrying puppies around, just just always like dogs. So I, I said, well, you know, I'm not a trainer. I'm not a groomer. Um, you know, and we kind of just pondered around, like, how can I make some make some change? I was 20, 20, 21. Can't remember exactly. But um, then I just kind of started thinking about dog walking. And long story short, my older brother has a he has a, a business degree and, and, and does that still to this day. And so he kind of helped me figure out how to get an LLC going, figure out insurance, figure out certifications. And so essentially, that's what kind of built things up for me was just getting my foot in the door with dog walking and basically doing like 15 dollar 30 minute walks for every dog that I could possibly get my hands on and you know what to be honest with you 
dog walking as a business isn't as, you know, successful as it could be. And, and it was really tough to be honest with you. I remember I did it for like three or four years, just not making any money, literally like just nothing. It was like, I remember, uh, you ever been to a steward shop up here in upstate? Oh yeah. Great milkshakes. Cool. Yeah, exactly. So Stewart shop. So they have, so Stewart's is just like a local gas station, but they have like, you know, just macaroni and cheese and hot dogs, and milkshakes and ice cream. And anyway, so I remember uh, having this old Nissan truck. It was like a T something. It wasn't a Tundra, but it was like lower than that. And it was like a little two seater. And I remember just doing my dog walk. So pretty much from the age 19 to 23 ish, I started I'm really bad with timelines, by the way. <laughs> I, start, I just, I, I, I don't know. I start, I guess I could write it down, but then there, what, what's in the fun of that? So I started, you know, just doing dog walking. That's what I was doing. I was going out and I was walking people's dogs. It's pretty self-explanatory, you know, just going in their house, walking them while they're at work. But the Stewart shops uh, are pretty much everywhere in upstate New York. And I had a truck that I couldn't go on the highway because it would fall apart. It was just too, I just, I couldn't afford like anything more than that, right? So I just remember beating around for two or three years in different beaters and uh, buying peanut butter sandwiches from Stewart's yep. and kind of surviving off of that. And so and I was, dude, I was hustling. Like I was doing, I was, I, I was doing stuff that, you know, just like everything I could think of to get my name out there to get more clients. And it was really hard to just continue to grow because it's not that scalable. You're well, charging, and you're not in a city right? That's the other exactly. category, like a New York city, Boston, you know, or those suburbs where people have a two hour commute and work 10 hour days, they're eating this up, but kind of suburban yeah. life, not as many people. Yeah. It's not as, it's not as scalable. Cause you know, like, like you said, New York city, Boston, any, any big city, Seattle, who cares? You could go in and walk 15 dogs in one complex right. and then leave. Here it's like, you know, going 15 minutes this way, 15 minutes that way. But so anyway, so yeah, I mean, you could just imagine it sucked. I was young, um, you know, living with my buddies, trying to pay rent. You know, I think a lot of people go through that stage in their life where they're just trying to figure figure themselves out in the beginning. Everybody, I think everybody's continuing to evolve and progress and figure themselves out. But in the beginning, you know, just doing that sort of thing. And like I said, I, I did everything. I remember there were times where I would print out flyers at my house in my basement living with my mom i certainly was trying to live with my friends and couldn't afford it go back to my mom you know just struggling man just Dude, struggling to make same business work. same here man same it was, here it was tough so i just remember printing out flyers rolling them up rubber band flyer roll up like all that stuff going out and just shoving mailboxes in hitting different hitting di- I, w- I would do everything man it's kind of how i learned how to market myself um, as I, as I would look at demographics, I would go out and look at demographics. Facebook started to become, you know, more and more popular. Instagram started to become more popular. So I was doing the best I could to promote myself on there, learning that whole thing. And so, yeah, so, you know, I, but the real thing was, is I was trying really hard. I was working as hard as I possibly could as a young adult, trying to fuel this, this fire that I had inside me for dogs. And what, it, what ended up happening is I started cutting my teeth a lot on behavioral dogs because these dogs couldn't go to daycare. These dogs couldn't 
be let out by anybody because maybe they were aggressive, fearful, had anxiety. So I, I started to really kind of gravitate towards working with these dogs who couldn't go to these other very social gatherings like other dogs could, like a daycare. So that's, that's where I started kind of like getting into working with dogs. And, um, and yeah, and so, so I really just did that for a while, you know, and, and of course, just like you, you know, you go out and you work dogs. doesn't matter if you're a groomer, a field trial, um, beagle and hare, um, retriever. Like if you're working dogs, you're working with dogs, right? You got two or three leashes on you at all times. Your pockets are stuffed with decoys, tugs, treats. Um, your clothes are always dirty. You can't have nice things. You're running off <laughs> coffee. You don't get a lot of sleep. I mean, it's, a dog person is a dog person. Right. And it's a lifestyle. And I was doing that, man, for a long time. And this is when all my my friends and I think people between the eighteen between eighteen and twenty three years old are in college and they're building their career and building their knowledge of reality in the scalable future. And I was working with dogs professionally, you know. So that's, you know, I say professionally, I, I made enough money to keep the lights on. And uh, so I did that for a while and, you know, had an opportunity to also start working with some daycares and collectives and helping them with their daycare centers. And um, so things like that, man, I mean, it was so long ago, it's hard to remember, but that's how I really started working with dogs professionally and, and moving and gravitating towards working with clients and their dogs and training. So when you made that switch from walking walking dogs, how, what was your next switch? Was it a facility? Was it going into homes and actually teaching the owners what they yeah. need to do with so, the dogs? How was that? Yeah, so there was a switch. Here's the switch. Um, and this is kind of like my, you know, this is my story. And this is why if, if people understood things um, at a macro instead of in an agenda, I think that this would help the dog community, you know, having – different political views on what you should and shouldn't do. And I naturally got into the dog world very organically, very naive, very serendipitous. I just kind of floated in there because I was like, shit, this is the next thing. So uh, essentially what ended up happening is on one of my dog walks, had this, I had this client that lived on the railroad tracks and you had to go over the railroad tracks to get to the trail. It was an Australian shepherd that was an absolute nightmare uh, to other people, very aggressive, but again, it was just one of those dogs where I had, you know, I had to walk the dog because this guy couldn't find anybody else that would handle the dog. And I, and I didn't mind because he was fine with me and he was fine with my dog. So my, my, my St. Bernard Thompson who recently passed, I had him, he was probably, geez, I don't know, he was young. I'd say between the ages two to four and he went everywhere with me. And so throughout the whole process of me becoming uh, a professional of where I'm at now, I had a lot of ups and downs. I had to live in friends' basements. I had to live in backyards. There was a time where I spent a whole summer going into the fall in my, my buddy's backyard in a tent. And I just wouldn't give up on the whole thing. You know, people were like, go out, get a job. I worked at pizza shops in between the dog training gig, but I never gave up. I was like, this is what I want to do. I feel like it's right. You know, everybody kind of has their own plan in life, and this felt right to me. So I had, so, so my dogs were another big piece of my life. My, my parents broke up or split up when I was young. My dad moved away. I still have a great relationship with him, but he just wasn't around. My mom worked full time, you know, so I was really just me and the dogs. And as I continued in my career, I got Thompson, my St. Bernard. And like I said, I was bouncing in between my friends' houses, trying to rent out places myself, getting these back because I couldn't afford it, going back to my mom, so on and so forth. The whole poor kid, what was me type thing. 
And my Saint Bernard Thompson was my right hand man, and he he was with me throughout that whole thing. He slept in the car with me, he slept in the tent with me, moved around. We also went on dog walks with me, and I was out with this Australian Shepherd. Went over the railroad track, and he he was off leash because he listened pretty good. All my dogs always listened pretty good. He just you know you have you have a good relationship with your dog. Chances are you don't you know they'll, they'll probably listen to you. You know, <laughs> yeah. so <laughs> in theory that's how it works. Right. right so right. I was going all these railroad tracks. I had this dog Australian Shepherd on a harness. And my St. Bernard was off leash and I walked over the tracks and I looked to my right and my saint was just gearing up to give me a big old play bow. So he's kind of like stiff up like this and he's looking at me and he's all just ready to pounce, you know, to play bow and, and think this is fun. So he did. And I just, there was this moment and I, it just, it's weird. I keep playing. I play this back all the time, but I looked to my left and I saw a light which is a train. And I looked to my right and there's Thompson, my St. Bernard, who was evidently wanting to play, which is a terrible place to play. So I just started kind of walking towards them. Like, Hey buddy, let's go. I mean, train tracks are not super wide. So it's like, Hey, just get off the tracks and we'll talk about it later. Right. Well, he just kind of got this, this, I don't know, in him. And he just started running down the track away from me. Right. And I'm like, Son of a bitch. he's running down the track. Yeah. So I have, I have sandals on it because it's in the summer. I have this dog on a harness and I, I don't know if you've ever messed around on train tracks too much, but they have these big wide planks, obviously in between the tracks that the track lays on. And in right. between that, they have the big rocks that kind of keep everything into place. They're not like little gravel stones you find in the driveway. Yeah. They're like the big stones. Right. So right. I'm running and it's on this bank. I start chasing them and then I look back and I just see the train and I know it. Then I just instinct kind of kick in. I know it's coming. I'm like, and I don't know how fast it's coming. I don't know how heavy it's coming. I don't know. So I'm moving and I'm, and I'm running towards Thompson. I start to get nervous and I feel the track start shaking, start shaking. I'm like, Oh boy. And so, so this is, this is all going on. And so it all happened probably within 10 seconds, but it seemed like 45 minutes. So I got this dog on my right-hand side who's trying to get away from me because the train's coming behind me. I'm running in sandals in between these planks and the, the rocks, and I'm trying to make these split life-changing decisions here. And so long story short, I jump. I, I, I don't know what made the decision for me to do this, but I'm, I, you know, I don't know if you believe in God or whatever, but I'm telling you right now, something – I don't remember making these decisions that I made. Apparently what I did <laughs> was I jumped with the leash in my hand as the dog that I'm walking is trying to get away from me because there's a train about three feet from him. I jumped, grabbed my St. Bernard by his back, and barrel rolled off and pulled him off the track. And then the train just went by. Jeez. Dude, insane. I oh. mean, I, I get chills thinking about it. And so I kick off because there's a big, usually you know, train tracks really aren't flat for the most part. They're on a berm, like they're kind of built up. Yep. So I kick back and I'm sitting there and I'm squeezing my dog, right? And he's he's squealing and reaching back trying to bite me because I won't let him go. Right, right. And he doesn't know what's going on. I'm freaking out. And uh, yeah, man, so long story short. That's when you became a dog tree user. <laughs> that's when... I said, okay, this is the scariest thing ever, right? The conductor, 
got off with another guy with a clipboard and he was ready to fill out a death certificate. They, they, I was that close. They said that I, I was, I was, they thought I was dead. hundred no percent. It was bad, really close. So after that, I, I started researching off leash training, off leash work. I said, I never want, that was the scariest thing that's still to this day. Now, hopefully nothing happens remotely close to that ever again. Cause that's about the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. And so I started researching uh, off leash training. I started researching what I could have done better, you know, and then I came across this trainer in the area um, named Janine Lazarus. She's actually based out of West Virginia right now. Um, she owns Good Lad Dog Training. She's a British lady. Uh, she's a little bit older than me, and she was training dogs in the in the area. And I reached out to her, and she said, "Hey, I'd love to." I said, "Hey, I need off leash work. It's something you do. I saw your website. You do e collar training. I don't know what the hell it is. I don't care. My dog and I just almost died. I need to control my dog." And her website kind of went over the e collar and what it is, and. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. I, I don't care if she would have sold me hot cross buns. I don't care. I just never wanted that to happen again. So I met up with Janine, and she started introducing me to the e-collar. And then she started just – she's a very – she still is a very kind, nurturing, brutal British woman. I mean, I remember so many times I said, how do you talk to your clients like that? She says, it's easy. I'm British. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um so, yeah. So, anyway, so, so that's how I started getting into e-collar training, using my very first unit, a doctor, NCP, something or other. Oh, yeah. Um, this was 10-something 10, 10 years ago. I think my first um, doctor was a 300M. I don't remember. I think it was like a – is that right? NCP? Does that sound right? I think you're right. That's what I have, right? So, I was like, okay. She showed me the prong collar. She said, this dog's too big to be off leash. You need to leash him up. I said, well, he's going to pull me. She said, well, here's a prong collar. He's 150 pounds. You're not going to use that thing. I'm like, all right. So, so, so anyway, man, fast forward, right? That's kind of it. Now, there's one other thing that I, I didn't mention. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But again, you said you wanted to get granules, so I will. I, uh, in between, so before Thompson, when I was bouncing around trying to figure my life out, I wanted the St. Bernard. Love the breed. Fell in love with them. Just one of those reads you find, you're like, man, I love that. I don't know why. I gravitate towards them, you know, much like anybody else that loves a particular breed, I guess. Yeah. As I was bouncing around, you know, moving on the road, trying to figure my life out, having no money. Well, I ended up just being stupid young and dumb and, and saving up enough money to buy my own St. Bernard. St. Bernard at the time was $3,000, the most expensive I've ever paid for a dog. And, of course, for a broke, trying to figure my life out, very very new green business owner way more money than i could afford but i ended up saving money my dog walking purchasing this dog and my mom kicked me out of the house again because i'll never forget this it's funny as hell she told me that she's not living with the dog that has to back out of a room to get out and i said <laughs> okay fair enough you didn't sign up for that farm so anyway so when i got that dog i moved out definitely pretty much from her house and he went everywhere with me too dog walking and everything you know, and I was still bouncing around from pizza shop to pizza shop. I worked at Applebee's at one point. Anyway, uh, one night I was driving him over to see my friend's buddy. Or I'm sorry. I was driving to my friend's house to show his kid siblings the puppy because St. Bernard puppies are one of the cutest things you'll ever see. Right. He was about 
five and a half months. So he's still pretty big. I mean, he's probably like a Labrador retriever size at that point, but he's still a puppy. He's still cute. And I was driving over. His name is Saint. I was driving over one winter evening, and my my I said, "Hey, I'm I'm coming to your house. You know, show show your family." I was really close to my friends because I lived with them. I got kicked out of my house a lot. You know, trying to figure life out. I said, hey, I'm coming over because they're basically my second family. I said, I want to show you my new puppy. So I get there and show him the puppy. And and uh, he just, yeah, I went in the back of my, my Jeep and grabbed him. And he flopped over. And he was blue. His mouth was blue. His nose was blue. What? And I was like, what the hell? Yeah. And I pull him out. And he's lifeless. And I just put him on the, the, the garage floor of this house. And I, I now I just drag my one of my best friend's family outside to see this new puppy and I plop him on the ground and he's dead. Jeez. Dead as a doornail. Yep. So I'm screaming, yelling. I'm like, he's dead, he's dead. They think I'm joking. They think maybe I trained him to do this dead thing. I'm like, no, no, no. Anyway, man, I forgot to mention that. That is a big part of why I really didn't give up is because after he passed, I said, in what universe does a 20 year old kid have to save up all of this? I mean, it's like a, it's like a Disney movie. I saved up all my money to buy this dog. I got kicked out of my house from to, to work so hard to then have him pass away at five, six months. Right. And I just told myself, I'll never let his name live down. I'm going to help dogs for the rest of my life. And there's where everything else kind of snowballed with Thompson and everything else. So wait a minute. So that right. puppy legit died. And so you got Thompson. Yes. So I got oh Thompson. Gosh. Yeah. About a year and change later. Oh man. What yeah. did it die of? So, did you do a necropsy? No, it was rough, man. I, it was brutal. It was so savage. I literally, my buddy's losing his mind because I'm going about a floor in this Jeep Liberty I had, going about a hundred change down the north way. And my buddy's family called the animal clinic, emergency animal clinic. Said, hey, we got a puppy Saint Bernard coming in. They don't know. They don't. They don't know. And he was such a puppy man. They were like, you know, we could basically cut him open and figure shit out. And I was like, I don't. He's gone, you know. Mm. You know what I mean. I just, yeah. Yeah. It, but I, you know, I did reach out to the breeder, and I think it was it was in Western New York, but probably closer to you. To be honest with you, but this individual breeds—I don't know if she still does—but she breeds saints and newfies, and she's been breeding for like a long time. Many breeds, or I'm sorry, many litters, and she had a health guarantee. So, you know, like any reputable breeder would put in, you know? Right. I contacted her and I said, hey, this happened. She didn't believe me. She thought I was trying to, she thought, you know, some fish, I was young. So she's like, eh, I've never had a dog pass away, ever. For, you know, from right. natural, or, you know, causes by pr- probably a heart attack or. Maybe, not, so it couldn't have been a stomach failure. flip? No, they, they, they don't think it was bloat because. Usually when a when a dog bloats, they they can feel it. I mean, it's yeah. like hard and stomach. Big and That's what happened to my latest Saint Bernard. But they didn't say that, and uh, I don't know, man. So so she ended up thinking I was lying, and she thought something. And I'm like, no. And so she demanded the death certificate. So I was like, seriously, you know, whatever. I get it. Three thousand bucks, right? You know, and especially if she thought maybe I was scamming her as a kid, you know. Anyway, so I gave it to her. She said it's never happened. She's never seen it. She's willing to give me an, another puppy from another litter, and she took her entire 
she took off her entire breeding protocol insurance liability off her website. From, so so, that, so here's what I think about all the time. So that St. Bernard, she's doing multiple, she's probably got three or four bitches for each breed, newfies and saints, and she's probably breeding them all, I don't know, at least, I don't know, at least once a year each bitch. I don't know. I don't know. I don't really know the breeding protocols for large dogs. But anyway, so she, my point is that she's bred thousands of these freaking dogs. Right. Right? Thousands over the years. Maybe more. Maybe tens of thousands. I don't know. She's been doing it a long time. That's why I picked her. That's why I went there. That's why I paid the money. You know? And uh, and so anyway, yeah, I uh, it, it was just, it was really rough. But she, she, she ended up taking all that off. So I'm thinking, out of all these dogs, my dog. I'm the only one that had a puppy that had to die, you know? But I always think everything happens for a reason. And sometimes it takes a little bit of time for, for that to come out. As tragic as things get for people, and as tragic as it was for my 19, 20-year-old self to lose my puppy in front of my best friend tragically like that, you know, obviously my career came out of it and I'm helping as many dogs as I do now. And so anyway, that's kind of the other stepping stone that I kick things off with is I had those kind of scary things happen. And yeah, that's kind of how my career started. Janine pushed me and she said, Hey, you know, you're pretty good. You know, you, you work. And I said, yeah, I mean, it's my next level. And so, yeah, then I started kind of helping people out and then the dog training service came around and I was super insecure about it because I wasn't a dog trainer, but I could help. And I started helping a lot of people and I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to call myself a trainer. I'm going to call myself an educator. And that's where America's Canine Educator kind of was coined at the time. Cool. So, yeah, that and, was going to anyway. be my next segue is, you know, as this is all happening, the business develops and, and you become, you become Tom Davis. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of weird to, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel this way sometimes when people are like Uncle Bob or, you know, Lone Duck Bob or whatever they kind of but when I'm south they call me Yankee Bob and you know but <laughs> sure. it, we've taken on this little bit of a persona and to me it's just I'm just freaking Bob man I'm just drinking a bush heavy right now and hanging out talking with another another guy that does this for a living and but you've become a real helper on the social media platforms and your business went from scraping by doing whatever you could to sleep on couches and you know what what I always say is you're doing the things that most people won't so later in life you can do the things that people wish they could right yeah so you hustled you made it you become a better dog trainer and educator as your your term would be and your business basically launched so what was that turning point where or in your head, maybe what was that turning point where you weren't hand to mouth anymore and you're starting to see things grow and you're, you're jumping into new ventures and, and what were those new ventures? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember kind of pacing around my yard, talking to my dad. Like I said, I have a great relationship. My dad lives in Southern Indiana. Um, and we talk almost every day. It's like one of my, he's probably my best friend, but yeah, we had a great relationship. And I remember just kind of walking around my yard one day. I'm like, dad, I, uh, I think I'm going to start training. People are, I, I always say this, I said, people are asking for it and it's not even on the menu. I was like, there's just word of mouth. So right. 
um, I felt really guilty about charging 20 bucks an hour. And I was like, dad, 20 bucks. And this, again, this was 10 years ago. <laughs> I'm with you, right? dude. So, I know. <laughs> you know, and yeah. like, and not that like, you know, 20 bucks an hour today is terrible, but you know, 20 bucks an hour, 10 years ago for a dog trainer, who's not really a dog trainer was a lot of money. And I was like, I don't know if I, and my dad just laughed just like you just did. And he said, Tom, one day they'll be paying you a lot more than that. And I'm like, I don't know, dad. Anyway. So yeah, so basically, um, once I kind of jumped into the, and here's the thing that I, I try to explain to people. And this is why I have a partnership and my own e-collar with Dogtra is my story is, is real. Like I didn't like the shit that happened to me, even if you were, if, if somebody was like, Hey, you know, we're going to put you through this life changing thing a couple times and then you're going to come out like this. I wouldn't do it. The shit that I went through, I wouldn't, I wouldn't walk through that again. But I, I went through it, right? Not a lot of people have to go through some of those crazy things. And some people go through 10 times worse. But my point is, is the dog training thing, see, I didn't realize how how it was, I guess. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm good with dogs. Some people aren't. Some people don't have time. I teach them how to have time. So it wasn't like, this. I guess my point is, is dog trip, Janine, using a prong collar on my 150-pound dog, and the e-collar because I almost got killed alongside of my dog and a client, right? So when I started kind of taking on clients, it's just, I'm like, I'm going to use this equipment because it's changed my life. Right. Right. And that's something I really like to point out to people is I don't use Herm Springer prong collars because I get paid to, and I don't use dog tribute. These are things that help me just like you or anybody else in their trade, in their craft. You know, a photographer with their first camera that they're really comfortable with that helps them grow and to be who they are, you know, whatever. So anyway, so that that's something I always like to mention before I get into like the, the next steps for me is there were things in my life that really made me understand why I do some of the things that I do and how I do them today. And they still hold true. You know, the equipment that I use for any particular dog that I'm working with we're talking about pet obedience, you know, we're not talking about gun dogs and field dogs. I mean, we're talking about Karen and Bill that have a Rottweiler and a, and a, and a Border Collie, and they work 50 hours a week. Those are the types of dogs that I'm working with, right? Right, right. But something I always like to mention, too, is just kind of the organicness that I got into working with the dogs. And so, started working, uh, you know, basically just get putting word of mouth out there. Same thing. See, that's the thing is I started offering a business that was so competitive and still working with dogs now is today, but the dog walking, I had, you know, 15 year olds next door competing for $5 for the hour, you know? So I, I, I guess my point is, is that that really hard time that I had with my dog walking company, once I started offering a service that was premier and had the ability to change people's lives, my marketing was already there because I was trying to put a square in a round hole for years and I still made it work. But now when I started training, things just kind of fit. Things just started flowing. When I started, I mean, I had a wait list immediately because I just, people needed help, you know, and everybody has a dog and everybody has a problem with their dog. And so, and then, so, so word of mouth is really how I started that. But also because I was struggling so much with my dog walking company, when I started advertising for training, I knew everything, not everything, but I knew a lot. 
I was ready to go because I was marketing and figuring out Facebook and figuring out Instagram and Twitter because I was trying to push a, a service that was really hard to people to buy. And then when I started dog training and getting into that, it was such an easy thing for me because it wasn't hard. I, I knew all the marketing things that I needed. And so when I started transitioning to, to dog training, things just kind of fell into place. And then the rest is history. Yeah. I, it's a really similar way of how I did it. I The only kicker is I had a day job as a multiple. I didn't stay very long at any place because of I'm, I'm a very – pleased that I own my own business now. Let's just put it that way. I didn't like bad uh-huh. bosses. I didn't like being told to come right. in on Friday at 4.30 to go at a sales meeting because they didn't want you cutting out early on a Friday. Like just, and I hated it, dude. I hated the monotonous, you know, oh, how's your, uh, what's your sales force numbers this month, Bob? Same as last <laughs> month, bro. Same as last <laughs> month. Not good. <laughs> You know, I slung copiers, I slung insurance, I slung oil and auto supplies and everything. And I would train dogs. I would go to people's homes for an hour a night and and teach them how to walk properly on a leash, teach them how to not jump on a countertop. You know, I would collar condition the dog with the owner and say, okay, I'll know, you know, the old, like, I'll know if you didn't do your homework, right? Like I'll know in three days when I come back on Wednesday, you know, if we have hit these things, so you need to do it. Right. And so I'm doing all this stuff, teaching these people. And, and then I got an opportunity to move South and, you know, be, become a retriever trainer full time. And, but, but I cut my teeth and this is the question I was, I'm elaborating or, or digressing because I couldn't remember what I wanted to ask you, but, um, long story short, you know, that's, that's where I cut my teeth was Caesar Milan was, mm. you know, reading the book by the the monks and their monks, you yeah. know German shepherds and you know yeah. everything as a kid like you said you know everybody who loves dogs I, my parents are going through our basement right now and finding little notes from you know when I was six and I'm drawing a Labrador and a German shepherd I want to I want to be a police officer and train police dogs I want to do you know I want to yeah. have a, a Neapolitan Mastiff right and it's like what's what seven-year-old says that right so you know that's kind of a similar game but as as you're developing your skill set as a you know educator right so you go from dog walker to you know your your friend you said Janine right yeah she she actually was a she was a head trainer at the monks new ski actually no way yeah so that's how I that's how I learned e-college you know yeah Super cool. And and so this dog psychology behind, you know, I remember the first dog I said I'm never doing any more aggression was a Rhodesian Ridgeback that damn near took my hand off. And I, I made 60 bucks. I'm like, well, if I couldn't move my fingers for the rest of my life, that wasn't worth it. Right. You know, and uh, and he was like 10. <laughs> Come on. Uh, I was an idiot yeah. and I wasn't prepared and neither were they. And whatever long story short but but a caesar milan and and those kind of books really helped me understand more than just come sit down place right the behavior right the behavior and uh, i will be the first one to admit that i'm rusty now on that and wouldn't feel comfortable like i watch you do it and like dude he's right on right there that timing was really good 
Um, did you right. see the dog move, you know, his head, his ears twitched, right? And if you watch it, it brings you back to my glory days of getting my ass bit. But, <laughs> but I mean, that, so my question is, where did you develop? Or yeah. was it more hands-on and all these dogs yeah. taught you? Hands-on, man. I mean, that, that's it. It's like, little did I know, like, like I said before, day in and day out, that cable hitting the bowl, 6 a.m., coffee brewing, just like I'm sure you do every day, you know, especially working with field dogs and clients is it's just day in it. You're just handling dogs. You, yeah. You're working with dogs. You're hardly talking to people because yep. you're so busy working with dogs and you're just in it, right? You're zoned in, you're locked in, you're grabbing dog by the scruff, you're pulling up, you're breaking up dog fights, you're cleaning up poop, you're cleaning up puke, you're cleaning. I mean, you're just in it yeah. all the time. That's it, man. I mean, I did hard knock life of working with dogs by working with dogs, right? So you didn't do like, not that you, did you Yeah, I didn't do the college thing. Well, no, I mean like, did you watch the dog whisper? Did you read his books? Sure. Yeah, I love that. Sure, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, totally. Yeah, definitely watched Caesar. Um, Yeah, and we have a lot of mutual friends and colleagues and, you know, uh, we're working on some stuff in the future and yeah, so absolutely, of course. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's the GOAT. From, from what I'm concerned, you know, from what man. I understand, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's the most successful dog trainer in the world and he didn't get to where he's at by being lazy. And that motivates me a lot, you know? Yeah. But yeah, of course. <clears throat> but I mean, to answer your question for anybody out there that's listening, you know, Caesar also had a, you know, a television show for like, he still does, I think for like 15 years. So he's big for that reason, but he's also really good at what he does. But for anybody that's listening that's maybe wanting to get into the industry, because I get that question often, I'm sure you Same might here. have gotten that in the beginning, um, you know, is how do you, how do you, you just got to get in, you know, how do you, how do you start? And that's the thing with dogs too, man, is they're animals. So you can read a book, you can, you can watch a video, you can, I could call you and say, hey, how do I uh, desensitize gunshots to this golden? You're like, well, you can do this. And some people just don't learn like that. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of in-betweeners, right? Where you say, hey, just get the little thing and do this and do that. And then it happens and then my dog runs away. And right. I'm like, well, shit, well, that didn't work out. That wasn't his plan. So, yeah, man, I just, I got my hands on so many dogs in the beginning. And I was an animal control officer for a little bit. And so working with the sheltered dog, working with the legal, working with neglect, the band, abuse. Um, working with scumbag people, that's why my no bad dog brand means so much to me now, you know. So, so really, and I got this question today, and I get it often. It's just like, how do you get into it? How do you start working with dogs? And that's it. You start working with dogs. You volunteer. You, yeah. you know, like for me, I, I basically worked for free for four years, handling the area's most grouchy dogs. <laughs> that's how I learned. On top of, here's the thing too is. Working with dogs the way that we do, it. <clears throat> I'm not gonna, you know, I'm gonna. I gotta be transparent here because that's that's how I want people to be too. Is I also we have we have an ability that we were born with, an innate ability as an artist to work with these dogs. There's some people, and I'm sure you've seen it, that are robotic. Same thing as like learning how to play guitar, sing, dance, paint. I can't draw for crap. I couldn't draw you a stick figure if you wanted me to right now. I just can't do it. There's some people who just have things, and there's some people who don't. And I think the people who are working with dogs have to have that 
and it's and that's kind of our gift and that's our that's kind of our our goal in life it's my passion is to to give that to other people because it's a gift to me i was born with it a lot of this stuff i learned so i guess my point is, is on top of like you said you're six or seven years old drawing neapolitan mastiffs and, and shepherds on a piece of paper when you're a kid you know i mean those are things that you have that other people don't and and same thing with me when i was a kid I was just so fascinated by dogs. Not only did I love dogs like most, but I watched them, fascinated yeah. by them. I worked with wolves. I was an animal control officer. I did a lot of volunteer work. I mean, I really, that's how I prepared myself for reality dog training. So, yeah. Anyway. Side no, I, no, that's a, the best advice and, and thought as well. Like you could, not everybody's an athlete. Not everybody can, exactly. you know, dance well. And I think there is a rhythm. I think there's a body language thing. I think there's a time. There's one hundred percent a timing. Yeah, yeah. There's an art to it. There's there's a there's a finesse. The way your body moves, the way you can, all of it matters. All of that matters. You know, that's the difference between somebody going on the dance floor and you're like, okay, sit down, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Versus somebody's out there really moving naturally. Yeah. And, you're, and same thing with music. I mean, look at look at some of the most greatest musicians of our time. Didn't they just picked up a guitar or a drumstick? They didn't. Nobody taught them. They just knew it. And if they didn't know it, they figured it out and they did it backwards, like Jimi Hendrix or right. any other artist. You know. So anyway, I think that that's valuable for people out there. That if you feel like you have that niche in that that knack for working with dogs or animals in general, and you're just like, man, I got it. I, that's all I think about then you just got to go practice then, you know, like LeBron, like look at these super athletes, right? They have it. And, but they still have to practice and they still have to, you know, learn how to do the thing, but they don't, you know, anyway. Yeah. So when did it go? Cause you went from, if you're doing this, right. Then it became explosive where you're working with professional athletes and their dogs and, you know, traveling yeah. around and doing some big, big dog stuff. I mean, when did that happen, and, and was it through social media that that kind of caught the legs? Kind of. I mean, I, I definitely would say yes. I mean, you could. I always tell this to people because I get this question a lot. Like, you know, how did you do this, and how did you do that? How did you work with this person? How did you connect with them? And so, like, I tell people all the time that you could be the best in the world. Like, literally, you could have this magic power where you snapped your fingers and turned – golf ball to gold <clears throat> but if nobody knows that you can do it then you're 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 missing out on here here's and here's where it gets kind of tricky is my growth and my social media strategy is not to be big famous or successful but it's to help more dogs so when i post something or if i put together a video or i spend money on, an, on a, a videographer or whatever I'm doing it because if I can say something that comes out of my mouth that resonates with a person sitting in Bangladesh, Australia, China, or Texas that says, holy crap, that makes sense. I'm not going to put my dog down tomorrow. So I guess the answer to your question is yes. Everything that I think that, that that's natural for most people, right? I mean, look at the scouts and just, just people going to scout athletes. Like if nobody knows about them and they're not showing up on people's radars, they never make it to the big leagues, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, social media is huge because I was able to show people my God-given gift of being able to work with dogs and 
present information to people standing right in front of me in real life time to then, you know, per, dis, distribute it to, to other people. So anyway, yeah, I mean, for sure, social media is huge, right? Like, why does, it, why does anybody know anybody anymore? Like, nobody <laughs> talks about that. Did you ever see that one guy? Like, no? Okay. Well, how about this? You know, you just, you, that's it, man. I mean, it's just. Yeah, I mean, that's just the world we live in now. Like I said, when I first started, I remember creating my first Instagram account and kind of getting on Facebook and creating a business account. I mean, it was all kind of new. So I've kind of been going, I think we, our age group has had an opportunity to really take advantage of the social media and where yeah. it's at because it really started when you and I were getting into the industry and, you know, taking money for stuff. And now it's a completely different dialogue. But anyway. No, Absolutely. I agree. Yeah, and you're a, a savage at it. I mean, you are extremely talented, and you can tell you've invested, literally invested, yeah. finances, energy, creativity, thought to to do that, man. And and what you're putting out there is entertaining, it's educational, and it's, it's good, right? Like, there's plenty of ones out there that aren't good, but they're – they're putting the same effort in, right? But it's just not as good, mm. and um, yeah. and I think that's partially what separates the. I would, yeah. you know, I would say winners yeah. and losers. Really, I mean, what is that's that is what it is. But it's uh, and yeah, so it's a weird thing. so real quick while we're on that subject, what is the Instagram and and YouTube that people can follow? And we'll we'll double tap on it at the end. Yeah, but yeah. While we're talking yeah. about it now, let's do it. Yeah, so I have three different Instagrams. Uh, my main account, like my personal Instagram is at Tom Davis, which is T-O-M-D-A-V-I-S. And then I have my No Bad Dogs, which is N-O-B-A-D-O-G-S, so just one D. And then I have Upstate Canine as well. Um, so all three of those are my Instagram. And then my YouTube is Upstate Canine Academy. Cool. So Upstate Canine Academy, where are these dogs coming from to to have you and, and your employees work with them and, and work with their dogs? Yeah. And what are those services? Yeah, everywhere. Um, I mean, we have more out-of-state clients than we do in-state for sure. Um, Same and here, they're dude. coming from Same here. Yeah. Well, you know, people will go over 100,000 dog trainers to get to somebody that they respect or they vibe with. Yeah. So, you know, just it is what it is, right? Like, why do we go across town to get a slice of pizza when there's a 1,000 in between? Like, that's, I like that pizza. Anyway, um, yeah, so all over. Uh, and we provide everything. Uh, we do a board and train service. So everything from behavior modification to off-leash training to basic obedience, pretty much soup to nuts, anything that you could think of with dogs other than service dog work, scent detection, retrieval. Like we don't get into the specialty stuff. We really just train pet dogs. Um, that's our main focus and our, our forte. And then, of course, we do one-on-one -on -one sessions too for the local peeps as well. Cool. And then yeah. tell me about No Bad Dogs, because that's relatively new venture from what I've seen, yeah. right? Like in a year, year and a half, maybe? Yeah, right. Um, so, so the No Bad Dogs is kind of something we've been talking about this whole podcast. It's just, um, you know, we have the ability to understand dogs. Where you can look at a dog and see what they're doing and see what they're air sensing, see what they're looking at, see what they're scratching. I mean, we just know. We can, boom, we can pick up on that. And typically, um, you know, historically, my, my clientele is behavior modification with a pet owner. Right. So I think that's one thing a lot of people and it's one discussion that doesn't happen in the dog world, which I think would really help a lot of people to just understand everybody's in different lanes. Everybody's in different things, you know, 
what you're good at is not what I'm good at and vice versa. And, and that goes for every dog work working type of uh, classification. But anyway, but yeah, um, that's kind of like what I do is, is that. And what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think no you bad dog. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. So anyway, I just got so sick of telling people that it was, it was not the dog's problem. It was theirs. And so we started a, we have like a, like one of the first, and I'm still working on it and developing it, but one of the first dog training, like lifestyle brands. So we're making uh, lifestyle equipment and we're putting like really passive aggressive things in the back of t-shirts to, you know, chilling that, you know, we're very, uh, no bad dogs. That's also the name of my podcast. And um, so it's kind of like my slogan, but it's become its own identity and its own brand. That's cool, man. I dig it. There may be no bad dogs, but there are definitely some dinks out there. <laughs> yeah, and, and the thing is, dude, it's like, you know, and of course, like, if you get on, if anybody's looking at your stuff, you're under a microscope all the time. Oh, and yeah. So there's people like, no bad, it's today, somebody commented, no bad dogs, BS. I'm like, listen, you're missing the point, right? Yeah, like, exactly. You're missing the point, with, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're missing the point, Richard. I, uh, <laughs> I, you know, and I work with a lot of different law enforcement officers and, you know, same thing with you. I mean, you work with a lot of, like, working dogs, like, real working dogs who are supposed to be savages who aren't supposed to really have any control. They're just to hunt, flush, retrieve, kill, whatever. Yeah, right? dude. When you get into the working dogs, it's a completely different thing. It's so different. And so when I say no bad dogs, some people get me grief for that. They're like, this guy does obviously he does no genetics. And I'm like, no, listen, <laughs> I'm talking about Karen that brings in their border collie that tells me that their dog's an a-hole and is a bad dog because he's missing the kids in the neighborhood. No bad dogs. Right. No. <laughs> anyway. Needs structure. It's a representation for, yeah, it's a, it's a representation for, for the dogs who are mislabeled as bad because their owners have no idea what they're doing and they shouldn't have got a dog in the first place. They should just stick to hermits, crabs. That's right. Or the wrong breed for the wrong family and, and the run the gamut oh, of, of what, what the deal is, man. So um, no bad dogs, dude. You want to do uh, the shot for shot, man? Sure. All right. So we did an Instagram post. Um, it's anybody maybe from your neck of the woods that comes over. It's it's at Lone Duck. And we did a, a one of those little blurbs like, Tom's coming on the show. What you got for him? And so yeah. we've, we've got some good ones, dude. So yeah, let's, do it. let's do it. The first one is, well, we kind of talked about it. And, but we didn't dive into your opinion on it. And so Allison, Allison Curlin said, I'd like to know Tom Davis's opinion on Caesar Milan's methodology. Okay. Allison, I'm not going to answer. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, you know, I, I think people don't realize, like I said before, Caesar's people don't understand the meganess of what he is. Like I said, I know people in his inner circle. I know I have friends and very close friends that work directly with him every day. I mean, Caesar is a is is a massive superstar. Like not only just as a dog trainer, but as a celebrity. Like he's been on national television for fifteen years on prime time. You know, even back then when we didn't really have social media. I mean, he was a star. Right. So I think people get very like again. I'm under the microscope to a point where people can create a whole page on why I'm a terrible person for whatever reason, because of whatever reason, it doesn't matter. It's because the shoes I wear or the hat I wear or whatever. When you get people watching you and you get attention, it's tough. So 
I'm going down a rabbit hole, but I, I, I end. The point is, is this person wouldn't be asking this question if there weren't people out there bashing this human. Is my point. She wouldn't say, "What do you think about them?" If there weren't a thousand other people saying that this is terrible. Right. So I think just in general, Caesar Caesar's not a trainer. He's behavioral. He's somebody who understands dogs to the core because he worked with dogs his whole entire life, living on the streets of Mexico, working with street dogs, and so his he has a little edginess to him. And because he was put on national television and he's got millions of people who watch what he does, he's criticized every single move. So his methodology, I mean, a couple of things I don't like are, you know, the alphaness. I think that's overplayed, but I don't think he, I don't think even when I say something or even when you say something, the dog owner is going to take that and put it in their own way. And, and right. unfortunately, you know, Caesar says an alpha thing. Now there's this whole alpha thing and it's, it's overplayed right? Dominant, overplayed. Like it, it exists, of course, to people who really know dogs, but we don't, we're not, we're not, we're not, you know, <clears throat> riding home on it. So I think his methodology is, 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 he's a balanced person who understands operant conditioning, who also understands being assertive when a dog's a complete jerk and losing their mind and the stress and anxious. And he says, Hey, knock it off. And he handles it. And the dog becomes less stressed. I think that's beautiful. Um, I just think, just in general, his, his overall message and his gifts and the amount of people that he's helped is way bigger than people who don't agree with him because he's famous. I, I'm going to absolutely agree with that. I think, to to add a side note, I think if, if someone were to listen to this show from two years ago, there's probably something I said back then that I wouldn't say now. Yep. We're having a fluid conversation, um, you know, just two dudes talking and I may say something that really I wish I said it this way, but in the moment I can't, I'm not editing this, you know? And so similarly now he can edit their show on Nat Geo, but the point is in the moment when that dog needed a correction, he gave Mm -hmm. it or he snapped it out of, you know, the dogs fixated on a dog walking across the street and he does this. Well, was it a little harsh maybe to watch? Okay. Did it do it? Okay. Uh, you know, the, right. and so yeah, can we critique it? Maybe, but in the moment, what you what he taught America and the viewership was what I would maybe take away from it is that it's a dog. It's not yeah, your baby. Sure. It's not your baby. It's not your. Be- I mean, they are your best friend. I mean, my whole company's built on the unspoken mean. bond, but but they they don't understand the crate is not a timeout. They don't understand timeout. Right. They understand, you know, it's a crate. They go in it. They go to sleep. They might eat yeah. in it. Like, it's just, it's a crate. Stop putting yeah. human stuff on it. And he really brought that to light for people. And, and no one else has done that before. And so I think his methodologies are darn near spot on. You know, is it yep. how we both do it? No, but nothing is. So I thought he did a yeah, great job right. bringing it to the Agreed. masses. All right. Agreed. Next up, um, I... Patch the service dog. Mm-hmm. He said thoughts on double transmitters on one dog. Now, we don't know what this really means, but maybe he saw someone run two collars on a dog, or maybe you have. Yeah. I, I haven't, but, well, that's not true. I'll, I'll explain my version of it, I guess, in a second. But uh, what do, I, I don't know really where he's going for it, but if you do, go for it. I don't. Um, I don't. I, I, I've never done it, but I, I have seen people do it in the hunting world because yeah. they want they want to make sure that the dog is like if one dies or one isn't connected or one like especially if you're doing like rattlesnake avoidance, mm-hmm. mountain lion hunting, 
stuff like that where your equipment is life or death. Um, I've seen, and, and especially in the sport world too. So uh, IGP, Schutzen, French ring, Mondial ring, dogs that are like high caliber, like Olympic dogs that that's people's whole life. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen double rear sneakers, but I mean, for the most part, mm. unless you're, even then, like it's, it's a little overdone, but you yeah. know, it depends on what you're doing. You know, like that's the beauty of dog world is the context. If you, that's what makes or breaks. Right. Or context. you might do it. Exactly. Context. Yeah. So I would do it. Um, when we teach a dog to run a blind retrieve where they don't see something fall and I send them out into a field on a straight line and I stop them on the whistle, blow the whistle, they turn and look at me and sit down. You know, there's this whole process and I'm not going to get into it right now, but whole process of teaching that sit to the whistle. And there are some dogs that pick it up super easy. And then there are some dogs that are awful and right. I will have the collar on their neck totally normal. They get it. They've been taught it. This is not their first rodeo. And then I'll strap that sucker, another one on its back near its butt. Yeah. Right. And so I'll apply low stimulation on the butt and that sucker's butt will hit the down, you know, the ground and be like, Oh, right. Hey, good dog. Look at you. You did it. Yeah. Right. And all of a sudden the light bulb goes off. So I'll do that. Um, but I've never had like such a tough dog and maybe this is where he's getting at. I've never had no. to to double whammy him. So I don't know. I wouldn't agree yeah. with that. If you got a double yeah. whammy, we got another problem. Yeah. As far as the correction goes, I don't, I don't think that would ever be appropriate. But I can I also see if you get a really collar smart dog too, you could teach him to go to different directions with different sides too. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I thought about double doing. Double tap. Yeah. Yeah. Double tap on the left or the right. Get him to turn directions or something. Yep. Uh, all right, K underscore Gilbert two. At what age do you start getting more serious about your training? Uh, well, I uh, yeah, I mean for any training. Uh, sorry, I'm going to take the lead on this really quick. Yeah, I think for any. Tra- <laughs> You're the guest, any- man. This is your yeah. This is your show today. <laughs> yeah, um, for any training, I think uh, as soon as you get your dog, I know it's, that's huge for you y'all. I mean, I did a. A program with some dogs out in uh, Wisconsin. We did some golden retriever dogs, and they started neurological stuff when they were days old. So I don't think it's ever too early. But it's a bit, again, context, right? What does that mean? We're not correcting dogs at eight weeks. We're not sitting, but we're training. We're still training. That's right. You know. Yeah. That the word you used several times tonight is context. You know, the minute yeah. we get them home, and I've been doing stuff with. I've got four week old lab puppies right now. And we've been doing things with them, like you said, early neurological stimulation. We're putting them on different surfaces to get comfortable playing on different surfaces, da-da-da-da-da. But when I get them home, yeah, you're crate training. Yeah, you're housebreaking. Yeah, you're not jumping up on me. Yeah, you're not getting on my couch. Like, that's technically training. You're always training. Yeah, you're always training. But I would say – Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like a kid, you know, when they're young, they're always watching mom and dad. They're always learning. Yeah. puppies, Puppies are the same one. When do you think you flip the switch and let, like, that's probably not what they were asking. When do you flip the switch to, all right, you've, we've done the treat training with set. We've done, a, you have an understanding. Now I'm going to start holding you accountable. Um, mm. And again, that's probably still context, but yeah. when it's like, all right, let's start introducing the e-collar. Let's start uh, making yeah. set become sit and stay there for a while. Well, I think, yeah, you're, you kind of answered it is once the dog already knows the behavior. That's big for me. I mean, just like with kids, you're not going to punish a kid if they do something wrong unless it's life or death. 
But as long as the dog understands what you're asking them very well, I think it's appropriate then. Because again, it like depends on the dog. Depends. I mean, you can get a 12-week-old Dutchie or a Malinois or a GSP, and they'll know it. And you can throw them accountable at 12 weeks, but you get a golden retriever that hasn't done anything a day of their life until they're six months. You can't correct him for that, hold him accountable, and punish him for that stuff. It's not fair. So I think the first, it's just really about if the dog understands the behavior. That's it. If I gave you a, an eight-week-old puppy and you developed it the way you develop it, when would you start collar conditioning on average? Collar conditioning. Geez, that's such a popular question. It's so hard. For, this comes up every live I do with Dogtra. And, you know, again, it, it this is this is kind of um, redundant, but it really comes down to the dog. But if it was my dog, let's say it's like a drivey working dog, I, I don't know. Um, how old is the dog? Two, two, two months when I get it? Yeah. Um, conditioning or training? All right. Well, well, that's a great. Like like putting the collar on and not doing anything with it in the beginning or actually using the stem? Actually using stem. I think, again, I think it's the same thing as, as, as corrections. I think as soon as you start using what I call exterior training things, so it's like something other than maybe food or a leash, so a tug, a ball, uh, an e-collar, prong collar. I think that those things can be added in as soon as the dog starts understanding things. So that could be as early as three months, four months. For my clients, I say nothing really below six months. But again, like who's the chef in the kitchen, right? Is it me or is it Joe that likes dogs and, you know, wants to do e-collar training? Yeah. No, I think, I think your answer is spot on. I usually tell people six months because it's going to take them that amount of time to get the dog to understand the commands first, um, which will lead into Jacob Mills. Can you discuss both of your individual philosophies on e-collar conditioning? Yeah. You want me to go first? Yeah. Super simple. Uh, like I said, like e-collar conditioning, I learned from uh, Janine, who was a head trainer at the Monks New Ski, so it's very kind of on level to what, how they teach it. And it's, it's essentially just getting a, an e-collar that has low enough levels to, so the dog can get uh, some, some, some levels and not get corrected. So they just basically register the remote collar. And that's something that's then layered over uh, pre-existing behaviors. So... Um, when you're conditioning the remote collar, it's basically just layering over the e-collar for negative reinforcement. Um, so turning the e-collar on until the dog does what we want and then shutting it off as soon as the dog complies. So they understand two things. A, where the e-collar is coming from because I'm using a, little, a lot of verbal cues in the beginning. And B, they know how to shut it off. Very, very simple concept that can take, again, the right chef in the right kitchen about a week to do conditioning-wise. Doesn't mean your dog's off leash in a week, but that means that your dog understands it. That's really how I layer it in. Is I don't necessarily teach new behaviors with the remote collar. The only time that I use the e-collar as a correction is what I call a intervention stage. And nine times out of ten, I'll use the HPP on a dog for 280C or 1900, and it's just a vibrate, and I'll use that as a correction without any conditioning. But again, it's a, it's a really aggressive dog, and it's going to make me safer. So that's pretty much my my path. Yeah. All right, so my my thought process is my goal is to teach without the collar first. So once the dog understands what I'm asking of it, using a leash and treats and repetition and some new different environments, and I'm getting them to perform what I've asked 
all around kind of thing. And so we've got yeah. an understanding of what I'm asking of them and they're getting decent at it. Now I'm going to overlay stimulation on one command at a time. So yep. I, I personally like to start with here, the come, come or yeah. here command. Um, and so they're getting stimulation until they get to me. It's low level. I'll scale the level up to, to build an understanding of the faster you come, it's turned off and then I scale back down yeah. and then I scale up and I scale back down and I scale up and I scale back down. And it's over like basically five sessions that are super quick, right? Like five yeah. minute session on a check cord, either someone holding the dog back or maybe they're on like a tie out and they've got a almost like a pulley system where I'm holding them back a little bit and then give them the leash and they, you know, hum right to me. Um, and then yeah. like when they get to me, they win the world cup. They're, they're, I'm cheering them on. Like, this is the greatest thing ever. You just turn that pressure off. You already knew what here meant, but now there's yeah. something with it. Yeah. Then I do heel, sit, and then kennel or, or place, right? So I, I can send them to the dog bed. And yep. as soon as I get on it, pressure turned off. Hey, what a dog. You're the best dog in the world. Um, and so that's how I do it. And, and you're right. It's not super long, but I, I do it for known commands. There are yep. other trainers out there that I would say maybe we could have a mini discussion on who will get a dog in, strap a yep. collar on the dog immediately, and yep. and I'm not savvy with the lingo, but maybe you would be, where they are just, the button's held down until the dog performs a task. Maybe it's sit. Yep. Dog sits, pressure's turned off. Pressure's yep. on, it sits or it's, it's getting further away from the person. They, it comes closer to them. Pressure's turned off. Right. And so it's yep. teaching the dog what the collar means, but they are figuring, the dog is figuring it out on its own, how to turn yeah. it off. And I don't really like to do that. Yeah. Me either. It becomes stressful. That's why we always do like pre-existing behaviors. That's right. Just Same. like, like you said, you say come or here and the dog snaps around, turns to you. And it depends on the dog. We get this question a lot. Do you turn it off when they come or do you turn it off when they get to you? Depends on the dog and what you're trying to do. There's a lot of opportunistic dogs that I find that if you turn the e-collar off, they'll wander off and find something else to do. There's also a lot of really enthusiastic dogs that you hit that e-collar stem, they turn around and they're heading for you like the Kentucky Derby, and you can turn it off halfway or you can turn it off right when they come because they're not stopping. So it just depends on the dog, you know? It depends on the dog. It depends on that. And to me, that's where you're reading the situation. I might, yeah. even the dog who's super enthusiastic, I might still keep it on them. And then they really won the World Series when it's turned off. And, yep. you know, it, or I'll feather it, like being, you know, like a nick, 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 you know, mm -hmm. or they slow down, they get a little bit more, or, you know, it's just a feathering act. It's a finesse yep. of this session. I might not do it that same way next session. It's not play by play. Right. It's in that moment. I'm seeing the dog show me this. All right, I'm gonna, I might turn it up. Like, I don't know how you feel about this, but if I'm seeing a dog handle it, I might turn that sucker yeah. up and, and put some stress on them and say, okay, what did it do? How did it yeah. react to a stressful situation? And all of a sudden right. that tail starts wagging again. You're like, yeah, all right, buddy, you, you get this. We're starting to figure yeah. this out. Yeah. Sometimes they'll work faster too. Oh yeah. Turn up the pressure. They'll turn it off faster, especially those working dogs and they can handle that stuff. Yeah. Or like you hear people talk about a soft dog, right? Yeah. How, oh, my dog's so soft. I can't use a collar. Listen, I didn't tell you to crank it up to 127, right? <laughs> like, come on, bro. It, it's it's not black and white. Every dog's different. 
the methodology is similar, but in that instance, what am I going to do? Maybe I give a couple freebies. Maybe I intermix some treats again. Like whatever. You just collar condition. You got it. Yep. Agreed. That's correct. All right. Let me look here. All right. East so Yeah, you want to Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, you want to do one more, and then i got to catch dinner. Yeah, no, you're good. All right, let me look then, because there were another one. Resource guarding. This is not exact. This is this one's for you. How okay. do I fix slash help a dog who resource guards food, toys, balls, bones? Uh, okay. It's a good question. You know, resource guarding is one of those things that, it's a very dangerous thing. You know, it's a very dangerous thing when you're, because there's so many different levels of resource guarding, right? Cause there's like serious resource guarding where you can get mauled like a tiger or there's resource guarding where a dog is just being opportunistic and bratty. Right. So that's the first thing. It's just understanding what the velocity of this dog is thinking, because some dogs you get like an adopted dog, you get like, a, you know, a rescue dog air quotes. Um, and people get them home and everything's good and the shelter's never seen this behavior. And now they're snarling and growling at you because they grabbed the slipper and they're going to tear you apart, your kids apart because, you know, that's what they do. So you just have to really identify and audit where this resource guarding is coming from and how serious it is. That's the first thing. That's why resource guarding is my number one ask question um, in a behavioral world, just because it's so difficult for, for me to talk about because, I mean, it's like, it's dangerous, you know, if I'm like, Hey, you know, just go over and do this. And then they get mauled. It's like, so anyway, resource guarding is one of those things that you have to be very safe. So you got to have a lot of protection involved. If the dog is very serious about it, but I like to condition the muzzle outside of the context of the dog actually being possessive. So if they're possessive over bones or they're possessive over their food, but they're great outside of that, then I'll, I'll condition the, the, the muzzle way before I start working and tackling on it because it's safer. And then the other thing that I'll do is I'll also use a lot of X-Pens, which are those panels. For those of you who don't know, those are those wire panels that you can put up like a little baby gate. And I'll actually work with the dog. Um, and I do that on my videos a lot too. So I'll work with the dog with a leash on one side of the panel and I'll work on the other side. I can also do this like a chain link fence and I'll start working on things like that. But to be honest with you, a lot of times it's, it's relationship development if you have a dog that starts becoming resource guarding or having possessive issues, that's because they feel like they can. That's right. Like none of my dogs are going to grab something and growl at me. Right. <laughs> you know, they, that's just not appropriate. You know, I put food on their table, really good food too, you know, and, and it's just not going to happen. So I think a lot of it also comes down to their relationship because a lot of dogs, um, depending on the breed and the genetics of the dog can be more, um, I guess, inclined to be possessive than others. You know, like a lot of herding dogs can be more possessive than others because they like prey and they'll go and get a toy and they'll keep it and they'll say, this is mine. I killed it myself. So I think it's just a safety thing and just understanding that it's also potentially a relationship with the dog. So I guess to answer it in short, um, without, you know, being unsafe is muzzle condition and then teach the dog out, teach the dog, leave it. But I think most importantly, at the end of the day, teach the dog that if they let go or they, they lose focus of what they're focused on, they will externally get paid by you by equal or greater value. So if a dog is possessive over their their food dish and you have them on a leash and they go to the food dish and you walk up, 
and you, you pull them away and they start getting growly and reactive. Again, like you have to be a professional, handle that amount of respect and care. And their Dave do this tonight with their golden retriever in front of their kids. But that's kind of like the gist of how you would really work with this dog is understand. I just did it with a dog actually in my latest YouTube video with a Rottweiler. And I think the video is called, can I train this stubborn Rottweiler? He's not really that aggressive, but he's definitely possessive, right? You get a dog that's possessive over something and it can turn pretty ugly pretty quick. So I literally spend 35 minutes with leash pressure teaching the dog that if he engages into me and not the, the item, he's going to get paid with the same tug or the same food that he's actually trying to go after. So there's a, that is one of the tougher questions to answer because it can be so dangerous for dog owners to do it by themselves for obvious reasons. Right. Yeah. I think it, I think it boils down to a lack of leadership. The, and then yeah. the dog over fixating on anything. So at a young age, curbing that so they don't get overly crazy about X. And right. and a lot of folks feed into it. Oh, it's funny. Look at him. He's, he's a puppy doing this, right? And then he becomes right. 80 pounds, and it's not funny anymore. Um, right. But, uh, yeah, I think there's some lack of leadership there somewhere because, like you said, you anyone can come into my house and take a bowl of dog food away from one of my dogs. Right. They just understand that that's, that's just what happens. Um. So, no, I agree with you, man. Listen, Tom, I know you got to run to dinner. I appreciate your time. Do me a favor and tell everybody again where they can find you on your different platforms and, yeah. you know, your specialties real quick. And I, I truly, truly appreciate your time tonight. It was fun chatting with you, man. And, and I love a great come-up story of somebody who busts their ass and doesn't quit and ultimately becomes rewarded because you are an overnight success right that's what everybody thinks oh yeah overnight success right yeah, yes sleeping in the backyard popped, come on yeah this guy popped out of nowhere right yeah uh yeah man no, i appreciate it always always a pleasure um i love chatting with you i don't really you know connect with a lot of dog people in the industry because i'm too busy putting my head down and doing you know doing what i do and so it's always a pleasure man you're one of those people that i can definitely sit back and and talk to and relax with so i appreciate you having me on my Instagram handles are at Tom Davis, at Upstate Canine, at No Bad Dogs with one D. And my YouTube is Upstate Canine Academy. And uh, yeah, and I, I primarily work on educating dog owners about the variances of tools and the operant conditioning in the four quadrants and how dogs understand different things. And every dog has a different, you know, training approach. And I specialize in education and, and teaching. And I'm really not in the dog business. I'm in the people business because that's, 97% of my job is teaching dog owners what their dog is doing. So that's my thing. So if you're interested in anything like that, you can head on over. I also have a podcast. Uh, it's called the No Bad Dogs Podcast. You can check out the podcast as well. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for your time this evening. And I swear, when I get back from Thank the you. South, I'm either coming to you or you coming to me. Sounds good, man. Just uh, let me know. You have my number. I know. I'm pumped now. I'll be, I'll be texting you at midnight. It'll be awesome. All good. No worries. <laughs> All right, man. You have a great evening. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. It's a community that we built to help you and your dog on your journey to next duck season. There's videos that don't hit YouTube. There's happy hours where we drink a couple beers and I answer your questions every other week. And by the way, if you join between now and September 1st, you're entered to win a hunt with me and Kevin and other Patreon members. So jump in. Let's go. Join the community. We appreciate it. And we'll see you there. Thank you.
Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Birdshot Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Birdshot Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation, to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Birdshot Podcast today. 